0: So the hymn that I chose, um, It Is Well With My Soul, was written written by a guy called Horatio Spafford, who underwent a huge tragedy, and he knew who the Lord Jesus was. He knew who his Saviour was. Uh, And there's a link in the hymn to the man that we are going to think about uh, this morning. And we have been thinking about uh, people from Scripture. Uh, We've been basically going through character studies. And we thought about uh, uplifting people. Uh, We have thought uh, in the last few weeks from David on uh, Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. uh, We thought about Hannah. Uh, We've had an in-depth character study of Peter. And uh, one thing that we will clearly know from all these people is that they were human. Uh, They were all touched by God, as you and I have. And to a lot of them, there is a, a very positive um, uh, inspirational I guess um, message uh, and I'm not going to buck the trend today um, with uh, somebody who is inspirational but maybe if you're going through a particular tough time then the person that you don't want next to you uh, is Bill Daddashio Act I know for some of you, so let's get it out of the way now, that conjures up the picture of a, a very small man. Steve knew I was going to say that. Uh, that kind <laughs> of, so, and so, so there's no link there, um, but it reminds me of my grandfather's humour. And for those of you who knew him, you might say that I have his humour. So let's just get that little, uh, build up the shoe out, out of the way now. My so, wife he, wears big shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't the size of a shoe, but he was from a place over there, you know, somewhere. Um, and he was hence called Shua. Who was he? Well, he's referred to as one of Job's uh, miserable comforters. And let's just read uh, a few verses from the book of Job, please. And I would start at the outset by saying, while Bildad really stuck the knife into his to his pal, use the word loosely, pal, uh, when his pal was undergoing uh a horrendous time uh, let's not denigrate him um, and, and totally you know kick the guy into touch um, because we're all human and there were some things that Bildad and his two other friends as so far and Elias did did all right but when it came to the crunch boy you wouldn't want it to be in job's shoes so job chapter 1 and verse 1 in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was job this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Down to uh, verse 8: The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Verse 13. Actually, we'll go to verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has in your, is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger? And then we read of the calamities that came upon Job. There was one verse that, um, and you know I'm a big fan of Golden Bells, the book Golden Bells Calendar. Um, and in the week, uh, on Wednesday, there was a verse that, in struggling to um, know what to talk about this morning, um, I had somebody on my mind, and the calendar verse reminded us of the verse in Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. And the comment referred to um, Job, and it says in Job chapter 8, Bildad speaks of those who rely on spider's webs for safety, only to find them useless when trouble comes. The Christian has a stronghold during difficult times, the saviour himself. He can never fail just going slightly tangentially, so the, the thought of that message on the 29th of June was about how the Lord Jesus is our stronghold in times of trouble. And I've been in parallel reading a a book which goes through the days of the year. And on June 29th, the one I read in the evening, it was about the parable of the sower. So lesson one is the amazing power of the Holy Spirit, often when we need it. And so... The first part was the salvation of righteousness was from from, from the Lord. He is the stronghold in the time of trouble. And in my evening reading, the message was, what's choking you? And in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. In this parable, uh, the problem is not the sower or the seed, it's the soil. And it talks about the worries of life. Do you remember the time when you thought the house you live in, the career you now enjoy, the investments you have, would would make your worries go away? But no, the more you have, the more you have to lose, to protect, to maintain, to, to worry about. That's the deceitfulness of wealth. If your significance as a person, or your sense of security, is tied to anything other than your relationship with God, worry will choke the life right out of you. True happiness lies in trusting God for what you need, knowing if it's better, he'll provide it, and if not, he'll give you something better. And so we go to, first of all, praise God for how he links stuff in our lives very, very pointedly at the particular time. But the verse in my morning um, thought from the calendar verse about Job 8, talking about those who relies on spiders' webs for safety, was in Job chapter 8. And it's part of uh, um, Bildad's um, speech to Job. And he says... He talks about, and I guess this is one of the things I want to pull out from Bildad, is that Bildad says something really wise here for us all to take into consideration. And a lot of things he said were okay, but the context in which he applied them were wrong. And that's a big lesson for us when we certainly, when we're reading scripture. What Bildad says was, Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. So one thing, one key message I'd like us to remember today is the destiny of those who either forget God or don't rely on God, because it's like relying on a spider's web. And, you know, God made spiders, and therefore God made spider's webs. And spider's webs are a wonderful thing. Uh, the spiders, as we know, spin, spin silk. Did you know that the tensile strength of of silk is um, greater than that of steel? No, I'm sure somebody like Steve would have known that. But, uh, well, maybe maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But do you know that the tensile strength of silk is greater than that of stainless steel? So that's the strength of something under stress, under under tension. Silk has a greater um, strength than steel. And yet we hear... Here in the Bible, that those who forget God, and we know the actual strength of a spider's web. Because if I drop this onto a spider's web, it would break. So while in itself being a wonderful material that God made, um, the analogy here is that the actual strength of the thing where the weight crosses on it is like when we forget God and we put our hope and trust in something else i have a summary here on the three, uh, as they're often called miserable comforters to Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And this says, few people in history have experienced the kind of tragedy that, that crushed Job. He lost everything. His children were killed, his possessions and wealth were taken, his wife turned her back on him, and his health was broken, all in a matter of days. Upon learning of Job's difficulties, some of his friends came to help. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar were shocked when they found Job. They wept for him. They tore their clothes and put dust on their heads in acts of sorrow. They sat in silence with Job for seven days. Why did his friends remain silent for so long? One ancient Jewish tradition teaches that people who come to comfort someone in mourning should not speak until the mourner speaks. That is a wise tradition, for often the best response to another person's suffering is to say, Nothing. If Job's losses were his first test and his painful boils his second, then his friends provided a third and perhaps most frustrating test. When Job finally vented his grief, each of the friends took turn attempting to explain Job's agony. They heard Job's questions as arrogant claims of not deserving such suffering rather than expressions of deep grief and misunderstanding. They offered answers that only served to make Job's pain go deeper. Eliphaz appeared to personal experience. Bildad pointed to universal wisdom. uh, And Zophar declared what he felt was common sense. They all agreed that Job's problems were his own doing and that he needed to repent. As I said, the hymn that we sung, um, and if I don't refer back to the hymn, if I forget that, somebody put their hand up because there is a clear link, because um, we'll, we'll, we'll summarise um, what those guys did right for him, we'll summarise Bill Dad's message, but even, you know, in today's world, there are people who maybe go through terrible suffering, um, and a finger is pointed, and maybe it is said, well, you must have done something wrong to go through that, um, and we'll see that um, scripturally that uh, is, is not as, as, I've, I've, as I've just suggested. So what was Bildad's message to Job? Well, he's first mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 11 as of one of three friends who come to comfort Job. Bildad, along with Eliphaz and Zophar, they visit him after they hear of the calamity that's befallen him. And when Bildad arrives, he can't believe the horrific nature of Job's condition. He mourns silently with Job for seven days. And that is, uh, we're told that in Job chapter two, verses 12 to 13. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him and began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I mean, you know, we've all been in a situation where we've been tired, we've maybe not not looked great, we've been ill. But I don't think any of us has been in a situation where, from a distance, somebody sees us and they begin to weep and tear their robes. What a state the guy that was in. So, um, after Eliphaz, Bildad the Shuite is the second of Job's friends to speak. And we're going to read what Bildad said to Job. Um, Job obviously clearly was in a, in a state, suffering from what had happened to him, and, and Bill that opens his mouth. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. So first of all, right from the start, uh, um, I mean we've seen some some light things in the back this week, politically, um, with uh, Mr Gove and Mr Johnson, and I'm not sure what your reaction when you when you saw those but personally uh, even being a fairly cynical towards the world of <laughs> politics i was totally stunned um and you saw them get off the the the, refre- the referendum bus over the last few months and, and you know it was one big great team and then you know at 9am or whatever it was um michael gove puts a call through to uh boris johnson's campaign manager and says i'm running And the knife is straight through the shoulder blades. Um, I've never personally encountered how it's gobsmacked. And yet there's a man here, and let's parallel the situation where, you know, sensitivity is key in lots of situations. And when somebody's suffering, then sensitivity is key. And Bildad says, your words are a blustering wind um, and right from the off, as Bildad opens his mouth, um, he is, I think, crossing the, well, a basic of uh, sensitivity and compassion to uh, his uh, pal, Job. Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly, and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rise himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. What they lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They are like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden, it entwines its roots round a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject the one who is blameless, or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter, and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. So, I have some uh, in-depth notes here, and for the sake of time, we're only really going to focus, I think, on the first speech that Bildad makes, and we'll, we'll kind of allude to the second and the third. Um, Eliphaz um, does begin courteously uh, when he starts to speak to Job. Um, but someone has noted that Job basically is accused of being a windbag by his friend Bildad, um, and he says basically in his message that, you know, if you, um, if you repent, then everything that you had will be restored. If you seek God earnestly and plead with God, if you're pure and upright, he will rose himself on your behalf and he will restore you to your prosperous state. Um, the implication of Bildad's speech is that Job isn't pure and upright. Well, we know from verse 1 that he is. Um, And the other implication from Bildad's speech is that material prosperity is linked to our righteous behaviour. And we know that's not true, don't we? And Job responds in in, in chapter 9 with a wish that he could plead his his case before God. And he laments the fact that there is nobody to intervene on his behalf. So we'll look a little bit, as I said, at what uh, Bildad says in chapter 8. And then we'll um, think of some thoughts around his friends and then think of um, maybe the best counsellor that there is and that the world has ever seen. So Bildad doesn't give a word of apology or any touch of friendly sympathy. There is no attempt attempt to soothe or to calm the sufferer. Um, Somebody's also described Bildad as um, um, the staunch Ramrod traditionalist, the one who sees all issues in black and white, and he prides himself on his straightforward, no-nonsense approach. And again, maybe that's a, we would, we would automatically think that um, that type of approach to somebody in Job's situation wouldn't be the right one, but that's the approach he took. Bildad w- was quick to rebuke Job for his strong words, but he didn't consider why Job spoke that way. He heard Job's words, but he didn't consider his plan. Bildad was also brash enough to throw the death of Job's sons before his face if your sons have sins against him he has cast them away for that transgression so not only does he say um, you're a windbag but he he basically says well your children are dead because of their transgressions and we know as well that Job was a righteous man and that he had made sacrifices for his children as well Um, and there was an arrogant certainty for Bildad, that Job's children had just got what they deserved. Having a, I think if we go through actually more of the same with Bildad, um, we'll probably get ourselves into a rut of he said this, and he said this, and uh, we get, I guess we get the message. I'm going to summarise um, Bildad's second speech, where uh, in Job 18, he focuses on the theme that God punishes the wicked. And his logic is that since God, since Job is being punished, then he must have done something wrong. And in Job 19, Job responds with a plea. He just says, I want to be left alone. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? In verse 21 of Job 18, in Job 19, he asks for his friend's pity. And uh, Job declares that God is alive and knows all things. And God would be the one to judge him fairly. Um, and that Job confirms, confirms to build that, that Job puts his trust in God. In the third speech, in Job 25, um, Bildad focuses on the idea that a person can't be righteous before God. And the centre of the very brief chapter, chapter 25, is that how can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? And Job answers with sarcasm, arguing that um, only God can know all things and fully understand the situation. So, what did the three friends have wrong, and what did they have right? Um, so, they did three things right, which can be seen in, in Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Their approach was right. Um, their very initial approach, and in, of a 40-odd chapter book. Their, the first, it's kind of summarised in the, in, the, in the second chapter. They came to him when he was in suffering, first Second, they empathised with him. They began to weep out loud loud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And third, they spent time with him. Verse 13 says, as we thought, they were with him for seven days before they offered their advice. And they commiserated with their friend in silence. As we thought, their silence didn't last forever. And the three men gave a series of speeches to Job, which are recorded as we know in chapters 4 to 25. Um... And one of the things we can learn is um, to take things in context and quote them in context and get things right, which often, you know, we might get the wrong end of the stick. But the speeches of Job's three friends, as we thought, include many inaccuracies, uh, primarily involving why God allows people to suffer. And I would say right at the outset, I should have said it at the outset, um, that I'm no expert on suffering. Um, I've had my tough times. And they're individual to me as have you Um, but these friends overarching belief was um, that job was suffering because he'd done something wrong and as a result they repeatedly encouraged job to admit his wrong and repent so that god would bless him again Um, and right at the end of job chapter 42 god condemned their advice he said i'm angry with you eliphaz and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me and there's a lesson there for us, as I've just already mentioned, is um, as we thought of the my intro to this, which was about knowing who Jesus is on a daily basis, is um, if we know the truth about God, then we will be able to um, clearly know him better, but minister to those who, in our circle, who are in need. So for this reason, we should Always be careful about how we interpret individual verses from Job. And it's certainly unwise in, um, in lots of parts of the Bible to pull an isolated verse uh, in our understanding of God, but certainly in Job. Um, and so, probably a worthwhile thing if we're reading from some, one of the speeches of Eliphaz or Zophar or Bildad, um, we're not necessarily... Be sure that it does accurately re- reflect the character of god context as we know uh, in life is important and certainly context of verses in the bible is important we do know from the book of job uh, that god uh, overstating his righteousness that's in chapter 42 because we, we know that he'd done nothing to deserve his suffering doesn't mean he was sinless we know he wasn't but we know that he hadn't done anything to deserve his suffering because that came from Satan's wish to test him. And the, tropes, the, the trials Job in, endured were not related to his behaviour. Instead, God used the sufferings as a test and as a part of his sovereign plan in Job's life. Uh, following Job's time of suffering, God blessed Job with twice as much as he had before. We can learn a lot, as we thought, from the example of Job and his friends, uh, when we're aware of a friend who is hurting we can follow the positive example of these men by going to the person um, mourning with them sympathizing with them empathizing with them spending time um, we always need to be careful around that don't we um, and again there are people in our circle who maybe sometimes uh, it's we would more appropriately take that from but even maybe if there are people who are not in our maybe uh, close friendship circle then that shouldn't discourage us from appropriately sending a text, sending an email, whatever it might be, uh, to help and to encourage. We can gain wisdom uh, from what uh, Bildad and Co did wrong. Uh, We shouldn't assume that troubles are a sure sign of God's judgment, Um, instead of telling a hurting person to admit they're wrong and repent when we don't know the reason. We certainly can join together and encourage friends uh, and those we know who are uh, in difficult circumstances um, of the constancy of who God is. Uh, we, we, uh, Steve referred in our remembrance to the rock that is higher than we are. Um, and we know that God sees our pain and has a purpose in it. Uh, Jesus said, one day mourn with those who mourn. Um, And when we are willing to enter into the pain of a suffering friend, we do follow Jesus' example, who did come to bear our pain and to suffer in our place. Um, And isn't that an evidence of our faith? Um, We thought, uh, one of my thoughts last time when I spoke on Hannah uh, was um, a a thought that I'd uh, (coughs) Got from uh, a lot of you know, I'm a fan of uh, the American evangelist Louis Giglia, and in one of his stories, um, he, he says of how God is painting on a canvas far bigger than we can ever imagine or understand. And in our particular, ex- particular experience of who God is, sometimes in what we see maybe yesterday, maybe today, tomorrow it can, it can be out of context. It's a bit like um, um, it's a bit like sometimes watching a watching a play at the theatre, our experience through a pinhole camera, and you see a blip, a blip, a blip, and the cross reminds us that in God's timing, um, then He has a purpose in everything. So, so why did I um, start with um, the Spafford hymn? where he looks like a river, uh, attendeth my way." Well, um, a lot of you will know the story of Horatio Spafford. You can Google him and get the story yourself. But he was a very wealthy man who lost everything, and as his family were crossing over the Atlantic, um, the ship went down. He had, I think, three daughters, uh, and his daughters were all killed. His wife was spared. And he uh, had a faith strong enough to write the hymn "When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way," which I think, um, you know, what would we do? What is our faith like? And the hymn of the man, that the the faith of the man and the hymn that he wrote encourages us today. Um, Not sure whether many of you know about uh, the later years of Horatio Spafford. So the boat that um, his family were travelling on in the Atlantic in the 1880s, I think it's 1870s or 80s, was called the Ville Havre. That was a French boat, by the way. Um, and his wife uh, gave birth to three more children. On February the 11th, 1880, their son Horatio Gertner Spafford died at the age of three of scarlet fever. fever. Their daughters were Bertha Hedges Spafford, born the 24th of March, 1878, Grace Spafford, born 18th of January 1881. And this is why I, my, my thought process had been pricked about this hymn because I'd read it before. Their Presbyterian church regarded their tragedy as divine punishment. In response, the Spaffords formed their own messianic sect dubbed the Overcomers by American press. In August 1881, the Spaffords set out for Jerusalem as a party of 13 adults and three children and set up the American colony. Colony members, later joined by Swedish Christians, engaged in philanthropic work among the people of Jerusalem, regardless of their religious affiliation, and without proselytizing motives, thereby gaining the trust of the local Muslim, Jewish, and Christian communities. During and immediately after World War I, the American colony played a critical role in supporting these communities through the great suffering and deprivations of the Eastern Front by running soup soup kitchens, hospitals orphanages, and other charitable ventures. Four days shy of his 60th birthday, Horatio Spafford died on the October the 16th, 1888, of malaria and was buried in Mount Zion Cemetery, Jerusalem. So it wasn't just Job who uh, um, suffered, uh, clearly, who suffered the accusation that... um, that he'd done something wrong to deserve his punish- punishment. And as we thought, God has a plan for our lives. And this man had the strength of faith to stay close to God and to show out his faith until the day he died. If any of you want to um, see a very, very uh, uplifting um, um, rendition of the, of the hymn to the story uh, if you Google Jeremy Riddle and Horatio Spafford, you'll find that on YouTube. So in closing, um, I wonder whether we could um, sing two verses. And uh, David, thank you for giving us hymn out today. Uh, we're going to sing two verses of um, that remind us of the greatest counselor. Um, there's, a, there's a part in Isaiah which talks about the Lord Jesus and calls him a wonderful counsellor and he is the one who has drawn close to us in our sin um, and went to the cross for us and we read in Hebrews that he ever intercedes for us so I'd like us to sing please just two verses that remind us of that in a second, we'll close in a prayer with a prayer in a second uh, but I'd like us to sing once we've closed in prayer um two verses verses three and five so let's just uh, ask God for his help